Hello and welcome to Pulp Dreams, the 1990s pop culture podcast, aiming to bring you the best and worst of 90s pop culture. We start off this week with the inexorable rise and fall of grunge and nirvana. So why are we looking at grunge first? Well, it's an interesting period in music, but also it's perhaps the last time, maybe forever, that guitar bands dominated the pop culture conversation. It also has the benefit of brevity. As we'll see, it took a long time for grunge to come to the fore, but ultimately its high point lasted but a few short years. Finally, it's a great story of how the oddballs and the misfits took over the musical world. Like all great stories, it has heroes and villains. In terms of heroes, there are a few more tragic than Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain. His story is linked inextricably to that of grunge, and it's something we'll go into in detail also. So, let's begin at the beginning. To understand where grunge and bands like Nirvana came from, we have to go back to the 1980s. Strange as it may seem now, while the Reagan era 80s is often thought of as a period of strong economic growth and Wall Street excess, this doesn't tell the whole story. There was a severe global recession in the early 1980s which pushed unemployment to the highest level seen since the Great Depression. In towns and cities across the USA, the impact was severe, but varied. Some places had very little impact. Other places, as an example, Flint, Michigan, saw huge impacts, with unemployment rising to nearly 25%. While the US economy recovered quicker than other countries, in many of these places, the jobs that were lost never came back. For a teenager coming out of high school, there were limited prospects, particularly if you weren't from a wealthy socioeconomic background. Youth unemployment remained stubbornly high throughout the 1980s in the USA. This was also combined with another feature of the Reagan era, a return to conservative family values. The 1980s were marked by the rise to power of the Christian right. This then was a healthy breeding ground for disaffected youth and teenage angst. And for as long as there has been youth culture, this has found an out in music. Yet, a glance at the US Top 40 chart from any random week in the early 1980s would not give you much comfort. A random selection from 1983 would include Hall & Oates, Styx, Kenny Loggins and Barry Manilow. This was not the music of the high school dropouts, the weirdos and the stoners. Beyond the Top 40, beyond Phil Collins and Sue Studio, however, there was a thriving underground scene. Born out of the ashes of the punk rock movement of the 1970s was alternative rock, so-called because it was a world away from the spandex-clad excesses of mainstream 1980s rock music. It was also a broad church, and included a lot of bands you'd be hard-pressed to consider similar. From Athens, Georgia, R.E.M., led by the enigmatic Michael Stipe, their atmospheric literate pop music was the first to break into the mainstream, and led to major label success yet they were also a world apart from other bands that carried the alternative rock moniker. From New York, Sonic Youth played noisy, detuned guitar rock influenced by the Velvet Underground and the Stooges. From Boston, the Pixies mixed punk rock power with dreamy, offbeat moods. And from Minnesota, Husker Du were a hardcore punk band that latterly discovered melody. All of these bands would find varying degrees of success as the decade wore on, and ultimately all fed into development of the sound that became known as grunge music including a band formed in Aberdeen, Washington in 1987 called Nirvana. Alternative rock was also known as college rock, as many of the acts were a feature of US college radio stations. In the Pacific Northwest, much of the scene was built around 
local indie label Sub Pop, which Nirvana would eventually sign to for the release of their debut album. Alternative rock was bubbling below the surface of the pop culture subconscious as the 1980s drew to a close. After spending the best part of a decade building a following with a number of critically acclaimed albums, their debut album Murmur is a personal favourite, R.E.M. eventually found mainstream success with single The One I Love in 1987 before signing to the Warner Music label in 1988. Of all the bands of the era, R.E.M. blazed a path for those that followed in their wake. They would eventually find massive international success with the release of Out of Time in March 1991, led by the iconic single Losing My Religion. It's impossible to talk about grunge without talking about Nirvana, and you can't talk about Nirvana without talking about Kurt Cobain. Later in the show we'll look at the other members of the so-called Big Four of grunge, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains and the Immortal Pearl Jam. But I think it's important to focus on Nirvana, their sound and how ultimately grunge is a very loose term. Nirvana were formed by Kurt Cobain and his Croatian-American friend Chris Novoselic in 1987. The band went through a succession of drummers before the arrival of Dave Grohl in 1990. If grunge has a signature sound, it is that developed by Nirvana and other bands in the Seattle scene in the late 1980s. This combined dense, heavy guitar riffs with moments of quiet, and in Nirvana's case, the songwriting of Cobain's dark, almost scatological imagination. Kurt Cobain himself was a character for the ages. Every decade of popular music seems to create a figure who defines that moment in time. Cobain was such a figure, and as we'll see, it was ultimately a mantle he was unable to bear. Nirvana released their first album in 1989, Bleach, on the sub-pop label. This was the culmination of years of effort on Cobain's part. It's something which comes across quite strongly in his journals, which were published posthumously. There are letters to drummers complaining about their inability to attend band practice, or their inability to commit fully to the band. There is mention of numerous labels that may possibly be interested in putting out some of Nirvana's music. This is a man who is serious about his music and wants to build a career. It is also in sharp contrast to the image which Cobain presented to the world when he finally found fame. The annals of rock and roll are full of many sad tales, and Cobain's childhood and his relationship with his parents following their divorce is one such tale. They divorced when he was only nine years old, and it ultimately became a defining period of his life and a significant influence on his music. The divorce seemed to turn Cobain against the world, and he became a withdrawn and rebellious child. Both his parents subsequently remarried, and ultimately he found himself at a point where he was passed around amongst friends and family with no real home, before dropping out of high school and becoming homeless. Always musically inclined, he began to play guitar after an uncle gifted him one for his 14th birthday. Cobain became a devotee of punk rock, in the form of local band The Melvins. It was while hanging around The Melvins practice area that he would meet Chris Novoselic, son of Croatian immigrants, and the pair soon became firm friends. Much of Nirvana's output was influenced by Cobain's childhood and upbringing. The lyrics crafted by Cobain are rich with references to it and his worldview. Something in the way from Nirvana's second album Nevermind is arguably their saddest song and deals directly with his feelings of alienation. The release of their first album Bleach and a continuous touring schedule led to interest from a number of major labels and generated a significant amount of buzz around the Seattle scene. It also led to a new drummer in the form of Washington DC native Dave Grohl. After considering a number of major labels, Nirvana signed with the David Geffen Company and headed south for Los Angeles to Sound City Studios to record their second album in June of 1991. Cobain had deliberately set out to write popular tunes than those that had appeared on Bleach, resulting in songs like Smells Like Teen Spirit, Come As You Are and In Bloom. Yet despite this, the expectations of both the label and the band 
were low ahead of the release of Nevermind in autumn 1991. Geffen hoped that if the lead single were to garner some airplay and help the band to build a fan base, they might sell perhaps 250,000 copies of the album. This would have been in line with other recent alternative bands that hit the semi-mainstream, such as Sonic Youth. However, the initial pressing delivered to US record stores amounted to only 46,000 copies, with a further 35,000 shipped to the UK, where Bleach had sold well. Prior to the release of Nevermind, Nirvana embarked on a brief European tour supporting Sonic Youth. This included two nights in Ireland, playing to tiny venues in Dublin and Cork, at a time when very few international acts visited the small island. During the visit to Cork, Cobain discovered his Irish roots and spoke latterly of feeling a spiritual connection to the place. The tour was a success, with Nirvana playing to rapturous crowds and is documented in the film 1991, the year that punk broke. However, in the meantime, MTV had begun to play the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit on its late-night alternative show, 120 Minutes. The video featured a high school pep rally gone wrong, with cheerleaders wearing anarchist symbols on their chest and the band at the centre. Due to demand, the video went into heavy rotation and Nevermind began to climb the billboard charts. On January 11th, 1992, Nevermind hit number one on the charts, knocking Michael Jackson off the top spot. The album was now selling 300,000 copies a week and it would ultimately go on to sell 30 million copies in total. Nothing would ever be the same again. Nirvana were the biggest band to break in 1991, they were not the only one. Pearl Jam released their debut album 10 in 1991, and though released before Nevermind, it sold slowly before taking off in the wake of Nirvana's success. Pearl Jam had a distinctly different sound from Nirvana, and were more reminiscent of classic rock bands of the 70s like Led Zeppelin and The Who, led by the growling presence of Eddie Vedder. Soundgarden had been ploughing a lonely fur since 1984 before they found success with 1991's Bad Motorfinger. Arguably, Soundgarden had the best singing talent in grunge in the form of frontman Chris Cornell, who possessed a stunning four-octave vocal range combined with a commanding stage presence built from years on the road. Last but not least of the big four were Alice in Chains. Of all the bands to be styled as grunge, Alice in Chains were most influenced by heavy metal, in particular by the doom-laden sounds of Black Sabbath. They would release their second album, Dirt, in 1992 to wide acclaim. The album is dark in tone, and the lyrics deal with lead singer Lane Staley's struggles with heroin. Together, these were the bands which gave grunge its name, and conquered the charts in 1991 and 1992. Like so many great things, grunge and its moment in the sun were all too brief. If Nirvana knocking Michael Jackson off the top of the charts in 1992 was the announcement of its arrival, then 1993 was its zenith and 1994 its nadir. Nothing did more damage to the guitar heroes of grunge than heroin. It ran through a whole generation of musicians that came to the fore in the 1980s and 1990s. Bands like Guns N' Roses even wrote a song about it, Mr. Brownstone. Its usage became so common among the Seattle scene that it inspired a whole look in mid-90s fashion, heroin chic, with androgynous emaciated models with pale skin gracing the covers of magazines and ad campaigns. Thanks to Ronald Reagan and his war on drugs, new smuggling routes into the US from Latin America had led to increased competition and lower priced heroin of a significant higher purity. This increased purity led to a rise in snorting and smoking the drug and a new class of drug user. Of course, we could devote a huge amount of time to determining what led so many of a generation into habitual heroin addiction, 
Personally, I believe it was a confluence of ready supply, angst and suffering. Heron could have swayed through each of the big four of grunge. Pearl Jam had been formed from the remnants of Mother Lovebone following the death of their lead singer Andrew Wood in 1990. Many of the Seattle scene had tipped them for greatness and with the addition of Eddie Vedder they found it. Pearl Jam are the great survivors of grunge. They survived the height of their popularity. A nasty and long-running dispute with Ticketmaster, changing musical tastes and a transition in their own sound away from its roots. They stand today as one of the great American rock bands of the last 30 years. Soundgarden reached the height of their fame in 1994 with the release of Super Unknown, led by anthemic singles like Black Old Sun. Lead singer Chris Cornell had long struggled with depression and substance abuse, and following the breakup of Soundgarden in 1997, this would take hold of him further. However, he came out the other side and eventually became sober in 2005. He would go on to form the band Audio Slave with the remainder of Rage Against the Machine in 2001. Cornell also developed a successful solo career before reforming Soundgarden in 2010 for a series of successful reunion tours. However, a happy ending was not to be. On 18th May 2017, following a Soundgarden show in Detroit, Michigan, Chris Cornell was found dead in his hotel room having committed suicide. He was 52 years old. Alice in Chains were another band heavily touched by the impact of heroin. Lead singer Lane Staley had long been addicted, a functioning addict, and many of his best songs dealt with his own struggles with the drug. Staley's drug use was such that the band was unable to record or tour after 1995. While they never officially broke up, Staley became something of a recluse and rarely left his Seattle condominium. He would spend his days playing video games and using drugs, though little is known about his activities after 1999. He would go weeks and months without seeing friends and family and was largely out of the public eye. On 19th of April 2002, his accountants informed his former manager that no money had been withdrawn from his bank account in the last two weeks. Police found him dead in his condominium. The cause of death was the speedball of heroin and cocaine. He was 34 years old. Alison Chains would eventually reform with a new lead singer and continued to tour today. Like Staley, Kurt Cobain had been a long-time heroin user by the time Nirvana found frame. Following his marriage to Courtney Love, lead singer of the band Hole, and the birth of his child, Francis Bean, Cobain made efforts to come clean, and did so, but never remaining sober for too long. This addiction caused difficulty with his fellow bandmates. As 1993 dawned, the band and Cobain were beginning to unravel. While touring in Brazil, Cobain got into an argument with Love and threatened to jump from the Rio hotel room. He would overdose on a number of occasions throughout 1993 as his usage increased. His wife, family and bandmates would stage an intervention, all to no avail. Cobain's journals bear out that while he outwardly professed to be happier while using drugs, he was deeply unhappy about his actions and regretful. Yet throughout this period, Nirvana produced some of its best work. In utero, their follow-up to Nevermind was released in 1993 to overwhelming praise and contained some of their best songs. In November of 1993, their MTV Unplugged performance was a particular highlight. However, ultimately, Cobain was only on one path. In Rome in March 1994, during the middle of a European tour which Cobain had done his best to try and avoid, he attempted suicide in a Rome hotel room. Courtney Love awoke to find him fully dressed with a suicide note clutched in his palm. After that, Nirvana largely ceased to exist as a performing music group. The rest of the European tour was cancelled and the band effectively broke up, with Cobain returning to Seattle, 
devoting himself full-time to heroin. He was finally convinced to enter rehab and flew to Los Angeles to enter the Exodus facility, which specialised in the rehab of rock stars such as himself. At the same time as Cobain was entering the facility, Gibby Haynes of the Butthole Surfers was also in the facility, and the pair shared a joke about a previous patient having escaped the facility by climbing over the back wall. The irony being that given the doors were open and never locked, you could have just walked out the front door at any time. That evening, Kurt Cobain climbed over the wall and escaped the facility. On April 5th, 1994, Cobain entered the garage of a Seattle home, put a shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. He was 27 years old. Of the big four of grunge, only Pearl Jam survived today. Of Nirvana, Chris Novoselic had something of a solo career, eventually becoming a campaigner and political activist in Washington State. Dave Grohl, of course, went on to form his own band, the Foo Fighters, and would achieve huge international fame. Pulp Dreams is written, presented and recorded by John Flynn in Dublin, Ireland. Our theme song is Stranger's Map of Texas by Michael Chapman and the Woodpiles, available under a Creative Commons license. Follow us on Twitter at Pulp Dreams Pod. That's at Pulp Dreams Pod. In next week's podcast, we look at the epic Keanu Reeves vehicle, Point Break.